0: Father you have been gracious to Steve Lawson to sustain his voice and his heart and his truthfulness and now I ask for a similar blessing. And I ask that the effect of both of our word would be radical obedience and I pray beyond that for a readiness to suffer which is what I want to talk about, for the cause of Christ, a readiness to take risks that would look foolish and be foolish were there no resurrection from the dead. And so I pray, Lord, that you would prepare martyr material in this room now and that some would be among the number that would be completed according to Revelation 6.11. I pray that we would be freed from the American grip, vice grip of ease and comfort and security and safety. I pray that you'd keep me faithful to your word now and balanced in its proportions and protected from the devil and filled with your spirit leaving out anything unhelpful and including all that should be mentioned for the strengthening. And Lord, I pray for those who are not regenerate in this room, that you would waken them from the dead. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, for those of you who like to uh, see how everything relates to everything, I will uh, take my starting point from the text that was just preached to you. Uh, I didn't know what it was going to be, and I'm happy to do that. So look at verse 6, and I'll uh, leap from there to my text, which isn't the same text. 1 Thessalonians 1, 6, You became imitators of us, and of the Lord. That's very crucial that you see that. Steve didn't dwell on that, but the second half, because you got two people there that are, are models of something, namely Jesus and Paul. Now, here's what they're models of. Having received the word in much tribulation with joy in the Holy Spirit. So Jesus was a man who received the Word of God in tribulation, sustained by joy, for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. And Paul was a man who received the Word of God and was told in the receiving of it, I will show him how much he must suffer for me. And yet said over and over again, we rejoice in tribulation. And you... Now, have become imitators of us in that. That's what I want to talk about. Paul saw himself lived out in this suffering church. So the question now is what's the function of the suffering of the apostle? What's the function of the suffering of the pastor and the suffering of missionaries? and the suffering of the saints. Is it something that just happens to you, which you then can honor God with because of the way you deal with it? Or is there a design in it for your church, your suffering for your church, your suffering for your mission field, for your school, Is suffering not just something that comes because the devil's a bad person and we then convert it into sanctifying influences in the power of the Holy Spirit and God handles it? Or could it be that when he said to Paul, I will show you how much you must suffer. There's a design in this. There's a strategy in this. And I can tell you, the reason I'm preaching this tonight is because I had not made up my mind to do it till this morning and over the Bible, praying this morning, I was overwhelmed with the sense they need to hear this. Most of these guys come from well-to-do churches where very few people suffer by design, because they have chosen to embrace the Calvary Road and the kind of risks that would be foolish if there were no resurrection from the dead. Now, that's a text I want to start with and then go to Colossians. But let me back into it because Richard Verbrand died two weeks ago. Raise your hand if you've heard of Richard Vermbrandt. That's terrible. How many hands are not up there? Well, go to his website on Voice of the Martyrs. He's dead now and alive in Jesus. But uh, Tom White, bless his heart, is going gangbusters to make that ministry endure. It's all about the suffering church. He was a Romanian pastor, suffered for 14 years in prison. I sat at his feet, literally. He takes his shoes off when he speaks and he sits down. He did. I was with about 12 other pastors sitting low, and I wanted to lie down. And he sowed into my heart, about 15 years ago, the seed of embracing suffering as a strategy. He asked questions like this. If you and the man next to you knew that both of you were about to have a child... One disabled, the other whole, which would you choose to have? He said, Jesus chose it. It didn't happen to him. we got something going on in our church right now that just makes me tremble. Dozens of babies are being adopted. Adopted from all over the states, adopted from all over the world. Adoption is big at Bethlehem Baptist Church because some of us are sitting in jail at the end of the 80s saying there's probably a better day, a way to do pro life than this. Well, there, there may not be, but one way is adoption. Now I'm beginning to watch the pain. You adopt little children from orphanages in Ukraine who are about nine years old. And what you get is pain. And if God is merciful, glory. But I just want my young families to know what they're doing because the pain is rising with every year. And some of them have had to let them go. And the pain of that is incredible. Life-threatening these situations can be. Not to the kid, but to the parents. And that's a little tiny choice of love. So here's my backing into the text through Richard Vermbrand. He told a story one time about a Cistercian monk. That's the order in the Catholic Church that is always quiet. They don't talk to each other. And... The radio interviewer in Italy asked this abbot of this Cistercian monastery, what if it were you were to realize at the end of your life that atheism is true and that there is no God? Tell me, what if it were true? And the abbot replied, holiness, silence, and sacrifice are beautiful in themselves, even without the promise of reward. I still will have used my life well. Paul would have given the exact opposite answer because he did give the exact opposite answer in First Corinthians fifteen nineteen. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all men most to be pitied, There's not a text in the last ten years of my life that has caused me more difficulty than this text and brought me to my face and called my ministry into question and threatened to change my future more than any text. It says... If there's no resurrection from the dead, the choices I am making and the life I am living is absolutely absurd. You realize how shocking that is in America? Because almost nobody sells Christianity that way. Why didn't he agree? I mean, love... Joy, peace, patience, kindness, better marriage, kids that generally go straight, a God who perhaps prospers your business. What difference does it make in the end if it turns out to be a delusion if you've lived a good life? I mean, zero at the end. doesn't matter if it was false. Zero means zero. There's no regret about the falsehood or the delusion. If it was a good life and you're zero at the end, blank, no consciousness. What's the problem, Paul? Don't you believe in Christianity, making things better, solving your problems and giving you A better life? No. Evidently not. I mean, what? I don't know what else to do with this text is to say no. (laughs) We are of all men most to be laughed at, pitied, regarded as foolish and absurd if I don't get raised from the dead after this hellish life. So what's wrong with us? See how frightening this is? How Every time I preach on it, I plead, Oh God, if there's another thing you want me to do, another way to do it, another cause to embrace, another radical way to get at it, show me. Please show me. there's no resurrection from the dead, he was living a pitiable life and he was choosing it. He was choosing it. Now, he, he did explain to us in that chapter what an alternative might be if there is no resurrection from the dead. He said in verse 32, let us eat and drink. Now, now, He didn't mean by that let's all become drunkards and gluttons because they're just as pitiable as Christians if there's no resurrection. To be a glutton and be way overweight and have a heart attack when you're 36 or to be uh, a drunkard and and live in the ditch and have to go through treatment over and over and over again, nobody looks at that and says, there's the life. (laughs) What he means is... Just be normal. That's what he means. Eat, drink. Be normal. Avoid any excessive risks. Keep the security high. Provide reasonable comforts. Don't be given to luxury or exorbitance. Just be normal. That's how to live if there's no resurrection from the dead, just eat and drink. Normal, simple, ordinary, middle-class American Christianity, if there's no resurrection. Paul explained a little bit of why he He said this about his life in verses 29 to 31 of 1 Corinthians 15. If the dead are not raised, why am I in peril every hour? I read that on the plane today. I said, good night. If I get in peril one hour, I try to fix it—fix the bars on the window, or new lock on the door, or some new vaccine, or or, or more people watching my kids. Or I fix this. I don't choose this. He did, and it wasn't one hour. It was every day, all day. Danger on the seas, danger on the roads, danger in the city, danger from false brethren, danger from the enemy. He didn't have any, any security at all, it seems like. It just was always in danger. How do you concentrate? How do you get your sermons ready? I mean, I've been in danger just a few times in my neighborhood when threats have come. That's hard to concentrate. Picture a mob. How are you going to prepare to talk to the Muslims tomorrow if the mob's outside tonight? How do you do that? You'll put flesh on who is sufficient for these things? Put that flesh on it. In peril every hour. He goes on, "I protest, brothers, by my exaltation in you, and in having Christ Jesus, the Lord, our Lord, I die every day." <gasps> now that's foolish, if there's no resurrection from the dead. If there's, if there's no resurrection from the dead, you. Get maximum life every day. You don't say, I die every day. What's that? Why did this man live this way? Why was he making these kinds of choices? What are your choices? Well, the answer to why is in colossians chapter 1 and that's my text so let's go there colossians 124 that was all introduction colossians 124 is one answer to the question paul why 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 you make it so hard for us he could have given many answers to that and i'll just deal with one and leave you to uh, painfully discover the others and then go to the Lord. You know, over in John MacArthur's office, I think it was your office, where we were holding up over there and praying, there's this brass statue, devastating statue, with a man on his knees and hands like that and uh, I think a better spin is put on it by the words on the statue than I would have put on it Oh God be merciful to me a sinner might be what I would have put on it I think what's on it is I will trust in the Lord but it's, it's, it's of a man who's just cringing and on his face before almighty God which is where I feel before these texts crying out that I discover how to do ministry biblically you know it may be that the John MacArthur pastors conference is is a real Bible soaked conference that may be but It also may be that we use the Bible to escape the Bible. That might work. That in order to protect ourselves from these kinds of texts, we do ministry a certain way. And I believe in expository preaching with all my heart. Here's the verse. 24, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. That's crazy. (laughs) We, We laugh when we have to because we just don't know what to do with it. Almost everybody in my church does just the opposite. They grumble when they suffer. They ask God why when they suffer. They don't rejoice. What's wrong with this man? He's just coming from another planet. The, the, the biblical, the biblical pattern of life is so supernatural, so radical, so different, so crazy. Very few pastors are living it. And very few laymen are living it. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, what in the world does that mean? You have joy. You have sufferings. And these sufferings are called the filling up of the lack In Christ's afflictions. So they are a design that Paul embraces to accomplish something called filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. That's a big verse. You don't need any more verses. That's big. So what does it mean? And we all in this room know what it does not mean. We know it from Paul. We know it from Jesus it does not mean he improves upon the atoning worth of the cross. When Jesus says it is finished, he meant an infinitely valuable and perfect sacrifice has been made and nobody improves upon this sacrifice. What has been paid on the cross is paid in full and nobody makes any contribution to the payment that was made for the forgiveness of their sins and the justification of their lives before a holy God. That Jesus alone has done, and we find our security by resting in it. So that's what it does not mean. You don't improve on the atoning value of the cross. So what does it mean then? Let me tell you what I think it means and then show you why I think it means this. I think it means that what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ is not the perfection of the value of its atoning worth, but the personal presentation to those for whom he paid the price through suffering. That's missing. Christ, by the Father's design, means for his sufferings, atoning sufferings, to be offered and presented to all those for whom he died in every people group in the world through suffering. That's what it means. With joy. Because without it, you'll never survive. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy that's set before you, you will endure the choices that you make that would make no sense if there's no resurrection from the dead. Joy is the only way you will survive your mission in this world. If you live this way, the joy of the Lord will be your strength through choices that nobody understands. Now, why do I think it means that? I think it means that because of the parallel use of the language in Philippians chapter 2. So I did what all of you do when we're facing an exegetical problem. I typed in plerao" and "hysterema," which are the two key words here of fill up what's lacking and the lacking part. Fill up and lacking. Where else are these words paired off? That's pretty unusual. Fill up what's lacking. Can I find a a parallel here from the same author? And uh, there are several. And the clearest is Philippians 2. It's all about Epaphroditus. Remember him? Epaphroditus took gifts from the Philippians to Rome to where Paul was. And Paul sends this letter and commends him because he came almost to the point of death according to verse 27 of Philippians 2 risked his life so there was a choice that he made that would have been pretty foolish but he made it and he survived by God's grace Paul says and then he tells this church to receive him and treat him a certain way now verse 30 because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to, now hear the words, fill up, it's not quite the same Greek word, anapleirao, instead of ant ra-o, what is lacking, same word, hysterema, in your service to me, so here you have a very close parallel, They have a love gift. They have sacrificed like Christ on the cross. We want you to take these things to the one for whom we've sacrificed. Take them and let him know how much we love them, love him. So you embody our love and it's incomplete until you get it to where we design it to be in Rome. And so he does at cost almost to his life. Marvin Vincent, who wrote a hundred years ago, a little over, a good commentary on this book, Philippians said, The gift to Paul was a gift of the church as a body. It was a sacrificial offering of love. What was lacking was the church's presentation of this offering in person. This was impossible. And Paul represents Epaphroditus as supplying this lack by his affectionate and zealous ministry. So that's my interpretation of Colossians 1.24. I think that's exactly what's going on in that verse. Jesus Christ has an affectionate sacrifice and offering for the world. And he has designed that it not be telecast or radioed, only, but embodied. We heard in the first hour, incarnational ministry. That's no fluke. That's design. Now, here's the question. If the design is to get the the atoning, effective, powerful, gospel-filling sufferings of Jesus into the lives of those for whom it was designed, by what means shall it happen? Paul makes it very clear what means in verse 24 of Colossians 1. I rejoice In my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I fill up. The method for the filling up of the lack of the personal presentation of the sufferings is what happens to my body when I preach. I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. I die every day, five times 39 lashes, three times beaten with rods, shipwrecked a night and a day in the sea twice. Skin and bones and lungs. have everything to do with evangelism and getting to the people whom Christ died to save. And the hurting is essential. Essential. Don't be a pastor if you don't believe that. He means for us to reach his people among all the people groups of the world and in our neighborhoods, with pain, our pain, he means for those people to see Jesus, the real crucified Jesus, in our crucifixion. That's what he says. In my sufferings for your sake, in my flesh I fill up what is lacking. This is an email from two weeks ago. I wonder how often you get these, John. Way too often for me. Two weeks ago, my brother-in-law, I'm going to use some false names here because I don't know if this person wants this out. Two weeks ago, my brother, Joe, was shot as he sat in his hut in northern Uganda village. Joe and his wife, Francis, are missionaries to the Muslim tribe, Aringa, northern Uganda, Three miles from the Sudanese border, middle of nowhere. Joy, their five-month-old daughter, just arrived in the States for a short visit. She'd been gone over a year. None of us had yet seen the baby. It was a happy time. Joe remained in Africa two days after uh, Francis' arrival. Joe and a fellow missionary, Martin were sitting together in the living area in the hut in the evening after hearing a strange sound outside. He suspected trouble, jumped up, kicked the door shut just before a spray of bullets were released. The bullets exploded through the door, hit Joe in the shoulder and Martin in the lower arm, and so on. And through a remarkable series of circumstances, well, may I should read one more line the assailants broke in, demanded money as they dragged, us, dragged them around and kicked them. And then they cried out for Jesus to save them. <clears throat> what happened? The familiar John Patton scene. The soldiers lowered their weapons and walked away. Now they're five hours from any medical help and they made it. That story had a happy ending. And we all know the stories that have the less earthly, happy ending. That's just normal, folks. That's normal. Woe to the church that doesn't teach their young people. That's normal. That's normal missions. We got this cockeyed notion that missions is not to happen where that might happen. You don't go to those places, especially not with little children. Where did that notion come from? Believe me, it did not come from the Bible. Closed countries is a notion that does not come from the Bible. Unintelligible concept to the Apostle Paul. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and I fill up what is lacking. Now, I don't know if it might be going through your head right now. Or maybe this is just apostolic. (laughs) Not pastoral and surely not Christian. Well, wrong. Whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. The path of salvation is the path of losing one's life for the sake of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, I say... In the name of Jesus Christ to all of you, enter by the narrow gate. For broad is the gate, and easy is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be that go in thereat, but narrow is the gate. And hard is the way that leads to life, and few there be that find it. Hard. Flibo. Y'all know that. Flipsis. It's the word affliction in the verb. Beat in, hemmed in, struck. Afflicted is the way. That's everybody, folks. He who would lead a godly life will be persecuted. Here's the reason that text finds so little echo in the American church. We have so domesticated the word asebaomai, godliness, that we scarcely can begin to comprehend what Paul means by it. Read your Bible, go to church, keep the Ten Commandments. Godliness. No, that's not godliness. Pharisees did all that. Godliness is so being ravished by God, so satisfied by God, so filled with God. So driven by Jesus' way that you live in a way that the only explanation for your life is God raising you from the dead. Well, I hope you mean that, amen. I'd find it hard to say amen. I do. Thank you for it. That's your better part. I'm not there yet. And I'm praying on the plane, and I'm praying in this posh hotel where they put me up. Good night. How do you get ready to preach this message at the height? I'm praying all the time Lord, get Noel ready for my next decision. That's my wife. That's what I'm praying. Get Noel ready for my next decision. One last word here. Joy. Now I rejoice in my sufferings. Oh, brothers and sisters, the Calvary road is a hard road. Filled with joy. If you become as weird as the apostle who said, I rejoice in my sufferings. How can you do that? I mean, this does take us back to the beginning of the message where, here I am, John Piper, Mr. Christian Hedonist. (laughs) Calling everybody to embrace suffering. And I mean this. We'll never be in America the church we ought to be until we choose to take risks that can only be explained by the resurrection of the dead. We will never be Christ's church, I'll say it again, until we choose to take risks that can only be explained by the resurrection from the dead. That's the only way we'll be the church we ought to be. And finish the Great Commission. And I just lost my train of thought. Where was I going? What did I say just before that? What did you say? Joy. That's right. That's why I bring these guys with me from Bethlehem down here. I do this. What was I saying about joy? I need more than a word. I need a sentence. Okay. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll figure it out. <laughs> oh, yeah. relates back to the first of the message where I was saying, surely the Christian life is a good life. So how do you explain this guy saying, I'm just to be pitied if there's no resurrection. And the answer, I think, lies in this, that Paul's joy, which just seems to me to be Absolutely boundless. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Write a next book on that, John. I want to. (laughs) Beat me to it. (laughs) Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Oh, there's a key to life in there. I want so bad. Or, here's the key. He said in Romans 5, 2, we rejoice or we exult in the hope of the glory of God. Then he said, not only that, but we rejoice in our tribulation. It's because the streaming in from the resurrection that's sure out there streaming in to this painful choice that I'm making right now assuring me of it can shed all the light of the glorious dawn of the life of the righteous we're going to shine like the sun in the kingdom of our father even if our head is cut off or they run a sword through our gut I just read this morning I'm going to lose my train of thought here again but I just read this morning In uh, the recent issue, current issue of World Magazine, article by Marvin Olasky about proselytizing, he said there are three kinds, because Bush is being beat up about this compassionate conservatism, you know, and all this faith-based stuff is just a bunch of proselytizing. And he said, well, two kinds are bad and one kind is good. Christianity does the good kind, namely give reasons and call for persuasion. And then he used an illustration of one of the bad kinds. He said, a hundred years ago in Turkey, Muslim lined up Armenian, that's Armenian, not Armenian, Armenian Christians. If you, if you don't learn the difference between that E and I in this seminary, you need a new president. but it's probably not your fault. <laughs> probably the hermeneutics prof or somebody like that. If you, they, he lined them, lined them up and they walked down the line with a sword and said, do you worship Christ or Allah? And if the answer was Christ, a sword thrust to the gut. Now, how many people do you watch that happen to? While you make up your mind, joy at that moment is not optional. It's the only hope of obedience. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross or the sword. It's the only way. That's why Paul says it here I rejoice in my sufferings. Well, I'm done with perhaps just a word of illustration from J. Oswald Sanders. I love this story, and I'll close with it. Uh, Sanders died a few years ago. He was a great missionary statesman. He was 89 when I heard him last. And he, he simply gave this illustration, which is so perfectly embodies uh, Colossians one twenty four. He said, there was an Indian evangelist, brand-new believer who wanted to tell everybody about Jesus. And he trekked a whole day through the hard uh, paths, came to the village, wondered whether he should wait till the morning or speak, went in, wanted to tell him the gospel before he slept, got a crowd around him, lifted the gospel, and they scoffed him, laughed at him. And he quit. He was so tired, discouraged. He walked out, lay down on a tree, fell asleep, And just a few hours later, as the sun was going down, it was almost dark, he said. uh, The whole village was around him. He he woke up in a start. He saw the big man of the village over him, and he thought, oh, they're going to hurt me or kill me. And uh, the big man in the village said, we came out to see you and noticed the bloody... Feet that you have, and decided that you must be a holy man and that you care about us because you came so far as to have feet like this, and we would like to hear your message again. I rejoice in my sufferings, and in my flesh, I fill up what is lacking in the afflictions of Jesus. One thing is lacking in the afflictions of Jesus, a personal, embodied, bloody presentation of His cross to those for whom He died. So I close with this key sentence that I got on the plane today. I've preached this message a lot of times because I feel so burdened to call the church to get ready, not for what may happen, but for what should happen if we're living Paul's way. You are being called tonight through my mouth, I believe by God Almighty to make choices in your ministry, in your marriage, in your parenting, in your change of jobs. Some of you men right now are hovering right on the brink of a, a radical decision. And I'm excited for you. God sent me here for you to push you over the edge. And what he's calling you to do tonight is to make some choices in the service of love, not masochism, in the service of love, 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 that can only be explained if Christ will raise you from the dead. Let's pray. So, Father, I pray now again for pastors who teach these things to their people so that they build radical, crazy, out of sync risk-taking, sacrificial, love-displaying, Christ-exalting congregations who can only be explained because Jesus has so satisfied their souls forever that they can say, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Well, that's the kind of congregations we want to build. Send them home to build them, O God. But Lord, will never build them if we don't embrace those risks of love. Show every person. Now, I ask by the personal, individual work of the Holy Spirit what that is for the next five years of their lives. What's the next chapter, Lord, for these 3,000 folks? Show them and may the world be stunned and give glory to our Father in heaven. Through Christ I pray. Amen.